Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. So we have been making our way through this little study. It's a nine-lesson study called The Gospel-Centered Life. This um, And... He, along with another mentor in my early years of making disciples for Jesus, all they did was draw pictures for me. It was like diagrams and discipleship just went together somehow. Um, and so I'd like to cap the two diagrams in our booklet here for you just to make sure if you've never seen the study, right, you could get it in two pictures. Here it is. Um, and I've been praying secretly that you would sometime this year scratch one of these out on a napkin or on a piece of paper for someone else. That was how I grew as a young Christian, was that somebody would just be like, hey, look at this. This is something I've got in my mind. Here it is. This is the cross chart. And what the Christian life is to be is not one where you have less and less need for God. The Christian life is to be one where there is a growing awareness of God's holiness, goodness, grace, glory. He is so much better and other than I could have ever thought from the start. And then a growing sense and awareness of the depth of my own sin and need. And it's not that I'm becoming more sinful or that God's becoming more holy, but somehow in my mind and in the eyes of my heart, both are increasing such that my need for the work of Jesus and not just what he's done, but for who he is, represented by the cross, continues to grow and grow and grow. This is the mark of spiritual renewal continually happening in a Christian's life. But that kind of renewal works itself personally in your own heart and life. And here's our next diagram. This one's what I call sort of like the alligator chomp diagram, you know? Alligator, alligator, eat them up, eat them up. This one is what I call the infinity of grace, right? This is the infinity of grace where the inward movement of the heart, where we experience God's grace through seeing our sin, exercising repentance and faith, getting the joy that comes from being united with God and loved by God, that has an effect. The inward work of God's grace always, not sometimes, always produces the outward movement of God's grace and love for others. And where their outward movement is lacking, you have to question whether inward movement is working. Outward movement where we see opportunity to love and minister to others. We die to ourselves and our preferences and step out in love. We, we rejoice as others are served and as community has been forged. And it's all because of God's grace. There you go. Nine weeks in a nutshell. Two diagrams. If those are the diagrams, the cliff notes, the last section of the study, lessons seven, eight, and nine, are the case studies. Maybe you've caught that. But seven is a case study on mission. How do I continue to do for Jesus? How do I continue to live for him in a way that's sustainable so that I don't burn out, run dry, can't do it anymore, or just operate out of duty and drudgery? How do I keep going? And the answer, of course, is that cycle of God's grace in our lives. Jesus was sent on mission to you. And until you can say, he came for me, 
He died for me. Until you can say that, you'll never say, Jesus, I'll go for you. Or you'll never repeatedly say, I'll continue to go for you. Send me. Mission runs on the gospel. But not only does mission run on the gospel, that's the first case study, forgiveness does. It's one of the hardest things to do in life is to forgive someone who's hurt you. But we have incredible resources in the gospel because in Christ, God has offered us forgiveness. And he's offered us forgiveness in such a way that our every offense against a good and perfect God who never did anything wrong to us has been wiped away. And forgiveness and reconciliation offered. And out of the the gospel cash, this relational funds that God's given us in forgiving us, we're then to offer and extend forgiveness to others. Inward movement to outward movement. And then today, of course, on Thanksgiving weekend, we get to talk about what every Minnesotan loves to talk about. Conflict, right? Conflict coming off of that family gathering you just had is our subject study for today. This is the case study that we're after. And I don't know what it is, but this is perhaps the greatest need for the gospel to land that we might have as a culture. Like there's something about us in our part of the country. We can't do it. Like conflict, see you later. I'm going to not go there, but we're going to go there. And James is going to help us get there with all of his directness and all of his wisdom, okay? So here is James applying the good news of Jesus to conflict. Here's what I want to show you today. I want to show you the fruit of conflict, the root of conflict, and then the harvest of conflict. Fruit, root, harvest. We're going farming today, okay? But let's start before the verses that Nathan read for us. Here it is in verse 1 of chapter 3, all right? We should have them on the screen. Right? Here's verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers. Uh Uh-oh, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Some of you might know this, but two guys from our church stood up last month right here to teach the Bible. And I'm sorry, I didn't tell them this beforehand, right? (laughs) But the standards are higher. The stakes are higher. And I'm sure Rob's sitting right there and Kalen, if he was here, would go, oh, this verse has new meaning, right? And it should, because when you get up, to teach the Bible, what what God is saying is that words matter. And not just your words, but the matching of your words to your life matters. And when you get up and the match doesn't make it work, you get into trouble, real trouble. So we'll keep reading here. For, For we all stumble in many ways, And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Greek, a complete man, a complete person, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. And look at ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Listen, here's here's point number one. The, The tongue is a force, right? Your mouth is a force to be reckoned with. It may be a small member in terms of the whole body, but it has power, great power. 
to change relationships, to change situations, to change the world. There is a gravity to the things that we say, and the mouth can be like a rudder that directs you, guides you towards the way that you need to go, or it can make someone lose their way altogether. The tongue is a force, but not only a force, the mouth is a fire. Look at this. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, just a spark. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Point number two James is making is the tongue starts with a spark, but it spreads like fire. And it can completely set a whole life ablaze, a whole family on fire. It can have incredibly destructive consequences. The tongue, especially in conflict, is something that you have to beware of. And furthermore, this small member seems like we can't get control of it. We're able to sort of, you know, train a dog. We're able to sort of tame an animal, go to the zoo, and you'll be able to see a show. But the tongue, it's like we can't get it under control. And in that way, the final point here is that the tongue is very much a mirror. It shows us us. Look at this. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. That's stark. But look at, with it we bless the Lord, our Lord and Father, and with it we curse the people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What's he saying? He's saying that the tongue, for all its strength, for all its force, and for all its fire, has a way of showing us how we can be split. It has a way of showing us that what we say matters. And the words that we say often reveal not just that we could be double-tongued, but that we might be double-minded, or almost as, as it is in the Greek, double-souled, split. Listen, the words we say matter, for sure for conflict, but for every other area of life as well. And that's why James is starting here, because he wants you to see that the words you speak to others hold weight, but the words that you also say to yourself hold weight. And then, of course, there's the words you say about others behind his or her back. Those hold weight as well. Duplicity is the enemy for James. He wants the, the actions, going back to teachers, right? The words of a person and the life of a person to match up together, to be whole, to be one. And, and so for James, his letter is dry and direct, but he's trying to get at the, the, the problem of being double-minded, 
That was his case in the first verses of the letter, right? That a double-minded person is unstable and hypocritical. And that God is after in me and in you a kind of wholeness. That the double-minded person lacks faith and also lacks freedom, right? That there's something about someone who's saying one thing but doing another that cuts off the work of God within them and then cuts off the work of God through them because they've chosen by their actions and their speech to only offer God half a heart. And that's not what God is after from us, remember? All of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Conflict is what catches us in this. I mean, if you're someone who avoids conflict, you know the gap between the words that you don't say and the words that you do say. Or if you're more of a kind of attacking person when it comes to conflict, you know that in one moment you can be blessing and encouraging somebody, and then in the next moment you can be berating another person. James is saying this ought not to be so. The fruit of conflict for us is often really sour. Many times it's bitter, sometimes downright disastrous, like a forest fire. But if you're in conflict and it feels like everything is burning to you, then you need this chapter. Because James is not just offering sort of your diagnosis and your mirror of what's wrong. He's going to offer us hope so that we might learn to do what is right. If you think about the power of words and the damaging effect they can have, you just have to sort of pivot from maybe your family gathering to our society. If you think about it, our society over the last few years has shown the power of language. And it may be that words had not started all of the fires, but I guarantee you there was some fuel for the fires that has come by the very words we've spoken, by the chatter on social media, by the disagreements or the things left unsaid when they should have been said gently. There has been a whole world of fire created. And it seems like for me, when I read the New Testament, like I'm reading the story of another world. Because for us, Words don't seem to matter. But the New Testament, the early Christians, and they were gripped with the reality of verbal sins. We are gripped with the demand for self-expression. But verbal sins is something that they knew they needed. Here's why. Because the early church was radically diverse. And the only hope for diversity is to have the kind of maturity needed to dialogue with others who are different from you, extending grace and kindness to them when you disagree, searching for like the point that I don't understand rather than thinking I have all the answers. There's, there's a huge need for maturity in order for any kind of diversity to flourish. And it did flourish in the early church because they applied the gospel to their speech. And not just to their speech, but to their way of relating to one another in conflict. James says this ought not to be so. And so he's going to tell us how it could be different. Let's, let's go here from the fruit of conflict to the root of conflict. And what James is going to do is he's going to borrow the paradigm of his older brother, Jesus. This is James, the early church father, the brother of the Lord Jesus, 
writing to us. And he takes us from that famous picture of the tree with a kind of fruit down to the root so that we might tell what's going on. Look at this. If we keep reading in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom always works, meaning it always shows itself. And it shows itself in gentleness often, in meekness. The good conduct of a person, James is saying, reveals the good heart within a person. Just like Jesus was saying, the fruit of a tree reveals the root of a tree. So let's keep going. But, verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be, be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. What's he saying? There's a kind of wisdom a kind of operating in life that is from below, that is natural, that is earthly, that is unspiritual. And it tends to be characterized by things like jealousy and bitterness and strife and division. And in case we missed one, every vile practice, James says. Now listen, some of your families only knew this kind of relating. Some of your workplaces only demonstrate this kind of relating. There is nothing but earthly kind of wisdom, a way of approaching conflict that's plain to all, but is not spiritual in any respect. It's a kind of default operating mode that only produces the sour and bitter fruit of conflict. But what's going on here is James wants to get us down to the root of conflict so that we might exchange it and then perhaps have different fruit in conflict. Look at this. Do you know there's a different way of relating? A different way of approaching conflict, a different way of speaking. Look at the wisdom from above. See how this list contrasts. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, it's impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make for peace. So there's a harvest of peace in conflict? Wait, wait, wait. what are you talking about? There is a whole different way of approaching the conflicts in your life such that they don't turn into quarrels and fights. But James goes on. We'll pick up the harvest language in a minute, okay? He goes on to describe for us where does the sour root come from? Here it is, verse 1 of chapter 4 that Nathan read for us. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have uh, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your problems. Listen, conflict becomes a problem when it's driven by 
our passions. What's happening here is that there is a passionate heart within someone, a desiring heart that sort of gained an edge to it, such that the desire has morphed into a demand and even a deserve. And it happens so subconsciously. It does for me, at least. Probably does for you. Where some seemingly innocuous and natural desire that we have shifts into something that becomes what we fight over and demand and pound the table for. Think about the most common conflicts you have. They start by really fair desires, right? Like maybe you desire, for example, a bit of rest and quiet after you're tired from a long day of work. And you can't get that. And then all of a sudden, there's, a, there's something raging within you after a long week of work. Is it wrong to desire some rest and quiet? No. What about um, you've set out an invitation or scheduled a meeting or a family gathering, and you desire someone to show up on time to that, but then they don't. And then all of a sudden, the desire starts to deepen and grow, and resentment starts to rise, and you go, why can't they honor my time? Why can't they come through? Think about it this way. What about a simple desire for teamwork, shared load, in a workplace, in a marriage, in a family? Great desire. All of a sudden, the desire unmet morphs into a deserve and a demand that we start getting angry over. Ken Sandy, in his classic book, The Peacemaker, describes this transition. He says, unmet desires have a way of working themselves deeper and deeper into our hearts. We come to see a desire as something we deserve. And the more we think we're entitled to something, the more convinced we are that we cannot be happier or secure without it. Even if the initial desire was not inherently wrong, it has grown so strong that it begins to control our thoughts and behavior. I mean, many of us would not say that our spouse, our family member, our coworker, our friend is our enemy, right? We would not really say, hey, that person's the enemy. I mean, good sitcoms run on the whole nemesis storyline, right? There's somebody who's like always opposing you and like there's comedy to that. But real life is rarely that severe. Nobody sets themselves out to be your nemesis, but when we start thinking that they are my nemesis, it's usually because our passions have made a problem. And we've desired something that's turned into a demand. And so our preferred future is completely at odds with what someone else desires and wants. And then in our right mind, we go, hey, I'm not trying to like battle this person, but all I can feel is like a war cry within me about how they're wrong and I'm right. And now we're at odds. Of course, we don't say any of that because we're Minnesotan. <laughs> There's something that happens within us that makes us sometimes plain unreasonable in conflict. And this is actually, I think, one of the core insights of Dr. Alan Godwin. He wrote a book called People Problems. And in it, he says that there are people who are reason-able, and there are those people who are not reason-able. That there's an actual ability in life and in conflict to be able to reason. He lists five muscles of reasoning that we have to grow into and exercise. They are humility, awareness, responsibility, empathy, 
and reliability. Humility, the ability to recognize my own personal faults and sins. Awareness, observing and naming specific ways that I have wronged others or others have wronged me. Responsibility, owning sin and being willing to correct future problems. Empathy, being bothered when I've hurt others. It affects me. Reliability, correcting our wrongs in a sustainable and lasting manner. Now just consider the contrast here. I'll only work a few of them between being reason-able and unreasonable. Someone who's reason-able as a person has the humility to say, hey, I could be wrong here. You could be right. right? I, let's talk and maybe we'll discover what's actually going on. Someone who's unreasonable tends to say, I'm right, you're wrong, I have all of the facts, and I don't know why you don't see it my way. A reasonable person has the awareness to say, okay, I can see it. Like, I can see an area where I'm wrong. And, and, and I, I actually need someone to help me see the areas that I might not be quite right. Let's continue to talk, and, and, and then maybe I'll learn a bit more of the whole picture because I can gain greater sight through someone else's eyes. But the unreasonable person says, hey, I don't need to see through your eyes. What I see through my eyes is right, and what you're seeing through your eyes is wrong, right? I, you need to come over to my side of the facts and stop claiming that your side of the facts are facts because they're not real facts. We could play the same contrast. Ability to take responsibility versus inability. Ability to show empathy versus inability. Ability to continue to be reliable in a course of change or inability. These are character qualities and capacities that have to be grown within a person. And when it comes to conflict, some of us are very unreasonable. But did you see what, G what James says to us? He says, that the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then open to reason. Open to reason. It is the way of life that is from above. It's truly, it's the way of life that is the gospel. The good news produces a kind of character like this, a kind of relating like this. And what we've been hearing for nine weeks now in the Gospel-Centered Life study is that there is a key foundational truth to growth and to change. And that growth in the Christian life and growth in life in general involves faith, believing certain things and turning from certain things. It involves a repentance and faith dynamic that continues to go on and on. Because if you believe that we live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world, you will be tempted to take rather than ask. Because taking is the only way you get. But if you believe, on the other hand, that, that others are never for me, they always seem to be against me, then you're going to naturally gravitate to defensiveness and to being reserved. If you believe, on the other hand, that it's terrible to be wrong, I have to avoid it at all costs, then you will always assert the ways that you're right and hide from the perspective of others that might show you ways you're wrong. Don't you see? 
These are all belief statements. They have to do with the things that we put faith in. And the way that we grow personally and the way that we grow spiritually is to say those beliefs are not true and I need to embrace more clearly the faith that is, the Lord, that is in the Lord Jesus. We cannot just go forward with the development of skills. Think about it this way. If you just say, hey, I need some new tips, tricks to conflict. Christmas is coming up. Thanksgiving went about, let's give it a C, maybe a B. We got to get better for Christmas. If you just resolve to be better, you will battle the taming of the tongue. And that hasn't worked so well. You will, in every respect, go and get some fruit from the store and then tape it or tack it up to the tree like a decoration, which will stay there, but it won't grow. It won't produce new fruit in order for the fruit to change. Lastingly, the root has to change. Redemption deals with the root, not just the fruit. The gospel is the challenge, not just to imitation. Try on the way of Jesus and it'll go better. But rather, it's the offer of reconciliation because God has entered the mess of your conflict and mine. And with all gentleness, pointed out our wrongs and then offered forgiveness and extended relationship and invited reconciliation. The gospel is a story of conflict. And for Christians, we have to embrace this and see this because Jesus is the most peaceable, most gentle, most reason-able person in all of existence, right? He's full of mercy and good fruits. He's, he's not given to sarcasm and biting. He's sincere, right? He is not into favoritism, but he's impartial. And he gives this kind of love, to us that betrays that he is so from above in the way he relates to us, in the way that he receives us. Jesus is the person we need in order for our approach to conflict to change from the core, from the root. This is the story of Christmas, friends. He entered into our relational brokenness and conflict. And he did it doing what? Coming and sort of avoiding it and not looking at it? Coming and attacking the problem? No. Jesus came offering reconciliation, pointing out the truth, but doing it with a kind of grace. Jesus is the one who sowed peace into the ground when he laid himself in the grave to finally and fully Solve the conflict. And as he was three days in the grave, got up again, rising and produced a harvest of righteousness. Those who sow peace and then make for peace. That's the Lord Jesus right there. There's been so much peace that's been won by the cross and the empty tomb that it can even change the way Minnesotans relate in conflict. That's a tall task. I think it's true that every culture has certain areas that are sort of reluctant and resistant to the grace of God and the work of God. And it does seem like for our part of the country, conflict is one of those. Perhaps for another, it could be approach to sexual ethics or it could be approach to finances or whatever. But, but for us, 
Conflict is the thing the gospel doesn't seem to touch. The root of conflict rests in our demands, becoming our desires becoming demands, and us pounding the table as if we deserve things. But here's the deal. When you meet the one who, this is Dane Ortland, he says it so well, who is meek and gentle. When you meet the one who's not trigger happy, Right When you meet the one who's not harsh or reactionary, when you meet the one who's the most understanding person in all of the universe, and that person walks into your fight, things start changing. So the point in saying Jesus is lowly, he goes on to write, is that he is accessible for all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, there is no human in history who has ever been more approachable than Jesus. He welcomes you today. It doesn't matter if you've been avoiding conflict. It doesn't matter if you've been attacking others. It doesn't matter if you're a war of raging passions. It matters that you come to him. When you come to Jesus, even in your mess, or even when you can't find a way out of a conflict, when you come to him, you are not cutting against the grain of Jesus. You are not disrupting his day or ruining his week. You are not putting off his deadline or something like that. You are going with the flow of Jesus' deepest desires. His very heart is to welcome those in need especially those in need in the midst of conflict. Have you come to him? Surely there's conflict in your life. Have you come to him? James won't let our faith sit without the work. And I can't, I can't either today. So I've got to teach these few final verses briefly so that James can put us to work now that grace has reigned supreme. The gospel that takes root in us always, always works through us. And the key truth you need to see here in James is that there is a potential harvest of conflict. It's not just that there's sour and bitter fruit, but there is a kind of harvest that comes through conflict if we will embrace it with the gospel. Just a few weeks ago, I took a day of solitude. It's sort of a monthly rhythm for me to just get away into silence, into prayer. Um, and I try and detach from all the pressures of life and family and ministry. And I try and stop enough so that I can listen. And as I was just walking, praying a little bit, but mostly listening, I walked through these Minnesota farm, farm fields, this corn that had been completely harvested, but there was only a few stalks left in this one field. And I've been thinking about that imagery, just sort of like turning around in my mind, going, Lord, what are you speaking to me in light of that picture? I'm not, I'm, I'm not claiming some kind of prophetic gift or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, what are you saying to me, Lord, with what I'm seeing as I'm seeking you and pondering my life and pondering what's going on? And I it's produced a lot of good thought for me, but here's the one that I think is needed for today. If you're, if you're a Minnesotan, by, by culture and by training, you will, if you refuse to let the gospel change conflict, you will miss out on the harvest. 
you will walk full of fields that are barren. Because there are so many gifts in conflict. There is a harvest of righteousness offered to you, even though it's difficult, it is incredibly valuable for those of us who follow the way of Jesus because he in no way avoided, he in no way attacked, but entered into the stickiest situations and brought about a kind of peace and grace and goodness that we so need. And so look at this. I want you to hear these words from James as coming from someone who knows conflict. I mean, I got to imagine he butted with his brother a little bit. His older brother was Jesus. He probably had some issues. Jesus really didn't. So, you know, there was something going on there. Um, but you can see even from James's writing, he's direct. Like he's to the point. He's blunt. He's the kind of person that when he was less mature, produced a few forest fires, right? He said some things that like probably got some people and himself into trouble. But he... He's learned through hard situations how to not handle conflict and how to handle conflict. And now, so I want you to see, don't, don't get scared by his harsh words, his strong words. Receive them as one who knows what it's like to be there. Here's how he comes out of the gate. You adulterous people. Whoa. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Okay, adulterous people. So we just, whoa, shifted to an incredibly powerful and sort of graphic metaphor here. And what he's getting at is when you engage in conflict from below, you betray an unfaithfulness to your spouse, not your spouse in the flesh, but the Lord Jesus, who is the great groom and husband of the church. You betray that you have put faith in something other than Jesus, such that your infidelity is producing a world of unrighteousness. What he's getting at here is to say, listen, you must wrestle with the fact that conflict is very much a matter of faith. Either faith placed in self or faith placed in the Savior. And so reckon with the fact that conflict reveals the opportunity for you to repent and to return, to believe. Why would you return? Because the Lord yearns over you with love and longing like a jealous spouse. Look at this. Keep reading. Or do you suppose that it's no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit? I believe that's the Holy Spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God is saying, I love your soul, and I want you to be faithful. I want, to, I want you and me. I'm yours, you're mine. Don't be with another. Stay. Even when you encounter challenge and conflict, Stay, trust me, be with me. That's repentance. But then here's faith, watch this. He has made what? His spirit to dwell in us. The Holy Spirit, scripture says, has been given to all who what? Repent 
and believe. All those who turn and then begin to trust in Jesus. When you do that the first time, you become a Christian and the Lord gives you the Holy Spirit to live and work out change within you, to unite you to himself. But when you repent and believe, fresh outpourings of the Holy Spirit continue to flood into your life. And so the Holy Spirit he's made to dwell within us produces what? Well, he is the one, the Bible says, produces all the good fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I need those things in conflict. I don't know about you, but the Holy Spirit within us produces those kinds of things so that we can operate with a wisdom that is from above. And here's the great, here's the great truth. I don't know about you, but if you ever sort of like given the Holy Spirit an inch, in a conflict, he takes a mile, right? Like you had that moment where you're like, I'm not having it. No, Lord, I'm not going like, and then you pivot once and you go, okay, I need some help, Holy Spirit. And it's like warp speed. It's like the Holy Spirit just takes you in a whole new zone. Like old attitudes and thought patterns slip away, new, fresh motivation and power to love somebody comes. It's nuts. And you know what's even better? If you're in conflict with another Christian, you, oh my gosh, it's good, right? Now, it's challenging when you're dealing with someone who is not a Christian. I believe that God is still at work in those people, in that person's life. And if you're not a Christian here today, God is at work in your life right now. But if you are a Christian here today, here's what I can tell you. In the midst of conflict, there is always a spy in the enemy camp. There is always somebody in the nemesis camp working on that person's heart, softening their rough edges, inviting them to repentance and faith. And if you start to ask the Holy Spirit, you start to pray for the other person, you'd be surprised like that, how the tone of the argument changes. There's somebody on your team in the other camp. And now here's the best thing about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit doesn't go to war for your passions, right? He doesn't go and help you win the argument, right? But he can, even with an inch, start to treaty build. He can start to ceasefire. He can begin the peace talks. And then all of a sudden, the two of you or the groups are beginning to operate with much more reasonableness and grace. Holy Spirit, incredible gift for conflict. All right. And then the last one, he's not done. As if like the third third person of the Trinity is not enough for James. He says, hey, and when you're in this spot, God gives more grace. Read the next line. He yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. God is not stingy when you're in conflict. He's lavish. He wants more grace for you. And therefore, James puts that grace to work. And he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So given God's grace, given the Holy Spirit, given the reality of the fruit and the root, here's what you're to do, church. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves. Boom, 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 boom. What do you do? You humble yourself before the Lord. What do you do? You stand up to the real enemy. 
who's not the person you're in conflict with, by the way. And then you begin to let the gospel purify your heart, the inside, and cleanse your hands, the outside, and reform bit by bit the way that you relate to others in conflict such that not just sour fruit comes from your life, not just avoiding or attacking is the way that you do conflict, but that a harvest of good fruit comes for you and for others that you're in conflict with. James leaves us with instructions because he wants to take the truth of God's grace and put it to work and exercise in our lives so that we also might gain those kind of reasoning muscles and learn to love others well, even in the midst of conflict. We pray towards that end and then we're gonna respond to God's word. Father, thank you. Thank you for this treatise on conflict, the, the power of the tongue, the fruit and just chaos that can come with conflict, the root of the problem, that our passions take hold of us, make us unreasonable. And the gift of redemption, that there is one who meets us even in when we are so blowing it in conflict with a kind of gentleness and peace that we desperately long for and need. And so may our experience of Jesus so change us such that our practice, our exercise of conflict becomes different, that we learn the way of wisdom from above and not default to the way of the world below. So change us, we pray. It seems insurmountable at times in our present culture and even in our present geography of Minnesota, but you have a harvest of righteousness for us, a kind of peace as we continue to sow for peace and then reap righteousness, goodness, purity, gentleness. May your grace supply all we need and may your spirit convict, comfort, and challenge in all the ways that we need. Work now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.